RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Well, over the last week or so, we've been following stories about the Electoral System Review recommending, well, uh, quite a number of things, among them lowering the voting age and uh, also the party threshold. And uh, we've heard that there have been 58 public meetings, more than 1,700 submissions. The independent panel of experts have been considering those public submissions and the panel chair, Deborah Hart, is quoted by RNZ as saying there have been piecemeal changes to electoral law over many years, including some recently. But this review is an opportunity to step back and look at the bigger picture. Well, someone who could give us a view of the bigger picture, probably the most experienced operator in this space in the country, joins us now, the New Zealand First Leader, Winston Peters. Winston, welcome back to Reality Check Radio. It's good to have you. Thank you for having me. OK, let's um, go through some of these points. And I will ask you how the campaign's going before we get to the end, by the way. But I thought I'd start off with the one that you probably have least objection to, and that is the rewriting the Electoral Act to modernise its language to remove references to faxes. You don't have a problem with that, do you? Well, we don't have a problem with that, but surely that is not a major and it's not a bit of concern. I mean, faxes came in and went in the space of 20 years. Yeah, well, it's in it's in the list, so I thought I'd mention it. Let's go through some of these points I mentioned in the intro. Lowering the voting age for general elections to 16 and extending extending overseas voting rules. Where is the pressure from 16-year-olds, young people at that age, to vote? I don't see it. Have I missed something? No, you haven't missed something. And the next question is, why not 40? Why not 12? And when you see, particularly in criminal trials, the number of barristers and defence lawyers making out that these people's minds are not mature enough, they've got a while to develop, and that's been the major plea in every case where there's youth involved, uh, you might begin to wonder how come it spins one way when it suits them and not the other way when it does not. And the biggest thing here that the so-called panel of experts, and that's an inverted commas, how they got that description is beyond me because they're talking about massive constitutional changes, and you've got to ask, which one of you is qualified to make those uh, recommendations in that context? And I'm going back to when the World Commission sat in, um, in 1986 and had its report. When the review came in 2010, they nevertheless went back to the Royal Commissioners of that time at the original report on uh, electoral change and asked them, what do you think? Where did this happen in this case? 700 submissions is nothing for one uh, for 5.1 million New Zealanders in that context. That's not huge at all. And the real issue here is, as I said, well, if it's 16, why not 40? And I'm not hearing an answer to that other than they're saying we need more people to be voting. Well, sadly, the 18 to 25 year old vote is the biggest non-vote in this country. All there now. Yeah, the panel chair, Deborah Hart, does have, it seems, a sort of activist background, so that uh, might speak to what you just said before. Uh, so we have to ask the question there, why is well, there... Can I, say, can I just say, when you said an activist background, when I saw her comments on embedding the Treaty of Waitangi into our electoral law, I couldn't believe what I was he hearing. This is against all the advice of great scholars and Maori uh, leaders like Ngata, a lawyer, a man who got a law degree in two years flat, Against all that advice, she is saying that. And there was no logic or rationalisation or empirical evidence behind what she made in terms of her comment at all. That's why I came out and said this is nonsense. 
So we can speculate then, can't we, why there would be, uh, among some people, an obsession to lower the voting age. And clearly it would be because 16-year-olds are easy to influence, easy to brainwash, let's say, tend to be idealistic in their young outlook. And so that's a fertile ground for the left. Well, (laughs) how convenient this is. And that's what's been going on across a whole lot of portfolios, this uh, what I call a small group of inner sanctum goblins trying to change the political settings of this country without any mandate whatsoever. Now, here's the most important point. Um, if that was true, you'd expect there to be more young people from 16 to 18 voting in, in percentage terms than older people. Why would that be the case? because they are going to live longer with their election results than the older people. But that's not a fact, is it? And everybody that's been around youth politics, and I have as a, as a young national member of the Young National Party, can recall all the work we put in only to find uh, that all sorts of circumstances would happen. Got a new job, got a new girlfriend, got a new boyfriend, and all of a sudden you don't see them. But life's like that. We were all 16 once, and I would never have thought when I was 16 that I knew enough at all to vote. No, I was listening to Led Zeppelin in my bedroom and um, interested in other things. So, okay. Now, what about extending voting rights to all prisoners, not just those sentenced to less than a three-year jail term? What's the point of that? Well, we are the party, actually, and the Labour that said, if you're in for three years or less, you should have a right to vote because it's an encouragement to uh, rehabilitation, to reform, to get back into society. So we were there making that decision between 2017 and 2020. But what they're saying is the mass murderer of March 15th, because you'll have a right to become a New Zealand voter now, because you lived here long enough, you're gonna give them a right to vote. Those guys that doped and raped those many young women, they'll have a right to vote. Uh, A whole lot of um, awful criminals have a right to vote. This is empirically stupid and extreme. And there is no reason to argue that they've got some democratic entitlement at all. That's the cost of massive effrontery in your law-breaking against society to lose the right to vote. So we ask the question again, why, what's the logic behind that, unless you think you can get a few more votes? I don't know. Oh, well, 10,000 more possible votes in a few blocks around the country could switch a number of electorate seats. That's how fine things can be sometimes. But I was actually astonished to, to hear them say that without knowing or thinking, and there may be a panel of experts, what the consequences were. How wouldn't the mass murderer of 51 people and scores of others massively damaged on the 15th of March, the tragedy that worldwide we're known for, how would he be entitled to vote under their prescription? Because he is. And I'd like to hear their explanation for that. Yeah, well, you'd hate to think that um, a bunch of uh, hard and uh, seriously offending criminals got a particular lot over the line. That wouldn't go down too well. Well, if it made any sense, I would back it. But it doesn't, and I'm not. Okay. This one, I'd be interested to get your comment on this one. Holding a referendum on extending the parliamentary term from three to four years. I think a lot of people think that that kind of makes sense, that three years is too quick. You know, it's like a flight to Christchurch. You're up, you're up for a minute and then you're down again and you really can't get too much done. What do you make of that recommendation? 
Yeah, well, again, it was a recommendation that I think a great number of people think is sensible and across the political divide as well. But they didn't address the real issue that has been the cause of a four-year term being a failure in past referendums. It's very, very simple. And if you're going to call yourself a panel of experts, should you know enough about the, the game of politics to have a more rational, sane, logical pathway to this? And the only pathway to it is every political party in Parliament says whoever wins the next election, whenever this happens, whoever wins the next election will get four years. But we're going to do it in this sense. We'll have an agreement in Parliament so there's not party political that whoever wins will get four years, but this will be done by referendum. The parties in Parliament will then put it to the people who will have the final decision. Then you could possibly get there. But in laying out this option, they didn't lay out the pathway to get there. And I'm just saying now, the only way is to ensure you get parliamentary agreement across the board to let the people decide. And I think you've got a chance for four years. But right now, here's your problem. Everybody that fears the hard left extremists is not going to give them three, uh, going to give them four years. And everyone on the left ahead who fears the hard right extremists is not going to give them four years. So you're stuck before you start. Right. Okay, I think we understand that. Lowering the party vote threshold from 5 to 3.5% and abolishing the coat tail rule. I've heard plenty of people say if the threshold was lower, we'd have more chance of getting these people out. We'd have more, I don't know, um, chance of, uh, of smaller parties coming together in the big picture and, and being a force. Is there, any, is there anything to that? And you should know about that. <laughs> It's very kindly to say so. Well, I'm now, obvious. We do know something about that because we have always been for 5% from the word go. And even when they were talking about it in 2010, about reducing it to 4%, we came out and said, no, we're for 5%. And the reason for that is it leads to far greater stability. Go to Scandinavia where they are talking about 11, 12 parties, and they'll tell you how difficult it is when you lower the threshold. Or worse still, go to the Italian experience where they had a government, more, they had more governments than years for about 25, 30 years because the threshold was so low. Or Israel today. No, the threshold should be at a level of 5%. And let's face it, if you can't crack 5%, don't blame the system, look in the mirror. And it's not a wasted vote in the way they say it. People who cast their vote have gone out and cast, cast their vote for a party that doesn't make 5%, the vote's not wasted, but they're just lost. And that's the reality of life. You don't always win. Yeah, but um, it's really difficult to get to that threshold, maybe too difficult. Well, but life is difficult. And the reality is we have too many uh, parties out there who go out and they start a cause and you hear them staying, making statements like, we're going to get 50% of the vote. That's what Roger Douglas said when he and... Um, quickly launched the ACT Party way back. Has everybody forgotten? The same time as you and first was being formed. We're going to get 50% of the vote. And these sorts of statements by political parties have been extraordinarily extravagant in between. But the common sense of New Zealanders usually eliminates them all. And sometimes you have tough luck, you don't make 5%. Well, before you blame everybody else, look in the mirror. And not excluding present company. That's <laughs> okay. how life is. I try and avoid doing that. What about the coattail rule? Uh, I agree with uh, getting rid of the coattail rule because it didn't make sense from the word go. It means you get a discordant parliament, you get a hangover, 
you could possibly get to not 120, but 122 members of parliament. And the extraordinary thing about this uh, group of uh, so-called political experts is they recommended a serious expansion in the size of parliament. They have to, to be joking. We've got far too many parliamentarians now. The last time there was a referendum, there was a massive dry, a, a majority for 100 members of parliament, not 120. But then the old, the old parties just ignored it and, went, and carried on and went ahead. And given, all, given how many state assets they've sold, hmm. there's less reason to have a lot of members of parliament. So you're okay with that? I'm not okay for. I'm okay for getting rid of the hangover. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There no, should be no I mean. more than there should be no more than 100 members of parliament. We can't get there, so let's make it 120. But please don't tell me the public can afford any more what I might call university student politicians <laughs> going to parliament and they don't know how to organise a school tuck shop. <laughs> how much? Just as a matter of interest, you might know how much extra does it cost a taxpayer for e every extra MP and everything that surrounds it? It must be significant. Oh, right now, I, I can't tell you right now, but it used to be significant, and I don't mind that, but providing that these people are up to the job. But you know, people like Holyoke and Kirk had about five or six people in their office. John Key and his successors have had about 65. Wow. See what's going wrong here? You've got bureaucracy all over the place. You've got a massive parliamentary bureaucracy working for the Prime Minister overseeing their own ministers. Why aren't they just trusting the ministers to know what they're doing and the staff to know what they're doing? And here comes the classic. This operation couldn't tell Mr Wood to get rid of his shares. And Jan Tanetti wrote up to the Prime Minister's office five times asking, what should I do? Never got an answer down. So you don't need all these bureaucrats. Let's uh, drain the uh, windy part of New Zealand. The swamp. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not the swamp. But let's 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 cut the breeze in the breeziest part of the country. We don't need all these people. Okay, I think this one possibly comes very close to home um, for you, and may have even been initiated by you know your experience a few years ago restricting political donations to registered voters rather than organizations and capping them at 30k to each party and its candidates per electoral cycle while reducing the amount that can be anonymously donated your comments on that well sitting on that panel was a guy that's quoted every day by air new zealand his name's Geddes uh, from otago university i don't think the guy is meant to be a, a, a legal expert I don't think he's seen the inside of a court. But there they have, with their bias, going there and trying to say uh, that this was occasioned by the past experience of the courts where political donations were concerned. Mr. Geddes, with the greatest respect, you know what you're talking about. We forced the serious court office to totally back down on September 29, 2020, to say that nobody in New Zealand First is under investigation. And then they pressed on against New Zealand First Foundation. They got smashed on the 22nd of July, 2022. That's last year. And you recall, I put out a press statement and not one media would put out one word of what I said. So you win, yet you lose. And here he is with this little group of so-called experts in inverted commas saying we need to do this. No, we don't. And you haven't made the case out. And your claims countless times with Guy and Esner and others on RNZ, Mr. Geddes, were proved to be absolutely fallacious you should be apologising, not pressing on with your bias. So that case, <clears throat> I think we talked about it briefly last time we chatted, but that case that brought 
by the serious fraud office. Was that basically a hit job on you? Is it? Was a hit job. When have you ever seen the serious fraud office announce, as they did in April 2020, election year, that one partisan investigation, and all the rest were too, but one partisan investigation, and we'll complete their investigation before the election. That's why we took them to court. So when we took them to court, guess what happened? The uh, as I described it, the head of the serious fraud office. Uh, uh, this dingo from Australia was never qualified in the first place. She lost her job in the end. Down she goes. She's off. We've got a new one now. And here comes the rub. They didn't have a case to take against us. But did any of the media say this is awful? This is this is a shocking attack on one political party. And why don't they, aren't these people be held to account? And then they went all the way to the 22nd of July having four QCs and spending $3.8 million of your dollars only to be to lose because they never had a case in the first place. And guess what? They then said, we're going to, uh, uh, the government said, well, there's obviously now a loophole. They couldn't admit that we'd won. The government then, Labor Party said, well, there's obviously a loophole, so we'll change the law. So it can't be going both ways. They're changing the law on the basis of the loophole and the serious forward office without any factual evidence or right is now setting an appeal, if you please with your money, having spent $3.8 million already. We had David Seymour on this channel recently, and he mentioned that and that loophole and the um, addressing it. And uh, he seemed to think that it was wrong because the, the, the whole concept of it was wrong because they were addressing a loophole. <laughs> so if you address a loophole, suddenly something's wrong. Well, the, but, but it wasn't a loophole. Well, that's what he I called it. tell you what happened. It is, in our law, and law that we inherited from the UK, fundamental that you cannot be accused of a crime that's not on the statute book. And we went into the court against them, serious foot officers, and said, OK, you show us the crime. And with four QCs and $3.8 million, they couldn't. This would be hilarious if it wasn't so expensive, so nasty, so corrupt, and so dirty. And we're never going to let this go. What about the cap that they're talking about, 30K, capping at 30K to each party well, and its well, candidates per electoral, per electoral cycle and um, restri restricting to registered voters rather than organisations? Is that is there any logic or fairness in that? Well, there's, there's no logic to that. Their the comments about the overseas interest, well, you can't send money from overseas into the New Zealand electoral system. That's banned now. Don't they know the law? These so-called, inverted commas, experts who are looking at our law. And the second thing is, what they're not telling you is, it's subtly in their comment, but the taxpayer is going to make up the shortfall. Have they asked the taxpayers in this country, do you want to pay for more politicians, like some countries have, where all the politics is paid for by the taxpayer? And when nothing changes as a consequence? No. And the other matter is, other, I mean, organisations and great causes that have started for charitable and other reasons should surely be able to, if they think their charitable cause is worthy enough, or their the cause that they've joined together is worthy enough, surely they should be part of the political process. So the person they put up overseas interest was never there in the first place. Read the darn law. The second thing is that the unions, for example, will be exp will not be able to help the Labour Party. They, didn't they think this thing through? Or do they want the taxpayer to make up where the unions were putting the money in the first place? It's all wrong. But of course, they didn't even get the bias that's there, that's there now. 
The unions can fully disclose to the max right now, but nobody knows who their personnel are in the union. But everybody else right now, under our current law, above 5,000, has to disclose their name. Well, great. But now they're trying to stop people being disclosed or otherwise. This is anti-democratic. And it comes with a hidden agenda, and it's biased, and it doesn't tell the taxpayer, you're the one who's going to be paying from here on in, according to our dictums. Yeah, but there might be reasonable concern amongst um, uh, voters, uh, citizens, that uh, some you know, wealthy corporates, for example, can throw a lot of money uh, in certain directions, and that could buy them a lot of influence that the individual, even in groups of individuals, could never match. So therefore, you know, there's a, a worry that the influence is below the line, but always there. No, that's not true. Look at Bernie Sanders in the US last campaign. Bernie raised a fortune from students and young people. If you get them motivated, committed enough, and they believe that uh, if for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all your life, I think all politics is going to control your life, and you become interested, then as Bernie proved it, they will start paying and funding up, just like they did for Obama. So all these you know, predilections against people's involvement are wrong, and they only hold to be true because so many people, given the boring nature and characterless nature of politics, hmm. are just not interested, sadly to say. All right, and this is the last one on the list, requiring the Electoral Commission to give effect to the Treaty of Waitangi. How could that work? Well, it can't. And it's a myopically stupid comment that anybody could possibly make. Here you've got a group that are all of a sudden jolting, not from the Supreme Court, not from a group of constitutional experts, no, just from a review of the electoral system decides we're going to put the Treaty of Waitangi embedded into our electoral laws. How can they possibly understand and know what they're doing when they say that? Why don't they actually look at what Māori really want, which is safe, affordable houses, decent access to a decent health system, uh, escalators of education, take their kids as far as they want to go, and first world wages. All these soft, cushioned, taxpayer-paid people live on the backs of their existence while the ordinary hard-working taxpayer, and Māori included, are neglected. I'm saying to them, get off your high horse and start focusing on what Māori really need. But that's really what the next election should be about. Can we even imagine what what that would mean in practice? Um, how could you, how, how would that work? I, I know you're, you know, well, you're before, but how could it ever, well, ever work? But, but, it won't, but it won't work. But here you've got something that is of critical importance to our, to our type of society. We live in a democracy. We've only, only one of nine countries since 1854 that have held unbroken elections. Of the 200 plus countries in the world, only nine can make this uh, claim held unbroken elections, apart from wartime, since 1854. And we put it the greatest democracy because we, Māori got the, elect the uh, election, electoral vote in 1867, and women got the vote in 1893, which shows you uh, the sort of course of importance. But it means well, we are more comprehensive democracy than any other country. And here they come out of left field, this group of inverted commas experts, and they say that all this goodness and greatness of having a democracy as imperfect as it might be, we want to change right here, right now, with not one bit of empirical evidence to back up what they're saying.
What a waste of taxpayers' money. Oh, do we know? What, what does this sort of thing cost? Do we know? In the millions, oh, well, yeah. What's it cost? Well, far more than you and I earn. Yeah, yeah. They're all well, good hourly not, rate, right? That's not you, but me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The interim report, they say here, will undergo a second round of public consultation until the 17th of July. That's not too far away before the panel hands the final copy to the government end of November. Do we assume that this is all potentially a fait accompli? I think so. I think so. Uh, if you could come up after 1,700 submissions, uh, given that um, there's 120,000 young people who are going to be, if their reforms go ahead, empowered if in the whole population including 120,000 young people between 16 and 18 only 1700 made a submission maybe this was a total waste of time yeah that's a good point that's hard that's the head of a pin really isn't it it is but you know you it's obvious to you it'll be obvious to joe blogs it'll be obvious to everybody's got common sense but when you're in the uh, august myopic clouds above the stratosphere of humanity you tend to think different, particularly when you're paid for by the taxpayer. So the public meetings, I was not aware of any of those, I've got to say. The 1,700 submissions, kind of window dressing, is that what you're saying? Just to position, position this for where they want it to be. <laughs> it's total window dressing. It's like, it's like the precursor of Final Aura, where they had all these meetings around all the marais of the country, and get, guess what the total attendance was in all the marais? The whole lot. Tell Less me. than 1,000. But they said they had a mandate. I didn't like that. It's a plausible deniability kind of position, I suppose. Oh, well, we we had meetings. We took submissions. Yeah, but, you know, I long for the days when we have a media that is a fourth estate, not a bunch of fifth columnists that actually trawls down and finds out the truth of these matters and tells the public what's going on. Well, good luck with that. We, we try, of course. Now, just before you go, uh, and with that uh, 5% threshold in mind, how's the campaign going, Winston? Well, at um, Mount Albert, Memorial, Memorial Hall, at 2 o'clock, you'll find out how the campaign is going. It'll be wall-to-wall, -wall, and so are all our meetings so far. We had uh, over 410 at Blenheim the last time we were there, just uh, Sunday a week ago. So it's going fantastic, but we're under the radar. Uh, the results of cynicism and spurious comment, but we like a challenge, and we're seriously uh, looking forward to the next few months. And watch the space, because it's going to take off big time. Okay, and I've seen quite a few posts come up from you on social media. So there's, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of activity there. What what are the issues that are, you're really, um, are, you know, banging away on on the stump? Well, in all the frontline issues like crime and the cost of living and uh, uh, uncertainty in the health system, the education system, and a whole lot of areas where New Zealanders are just are despairing of their country. It's not the country they thought they lived in, and they. Many are saying, I'm, I'm going to emigrate. We don't want that. But I tell you what the biggest issue is at the moment, and that is this country has lost its core values where extremists have run the political system for too long. And in New Zealand, most people want people to have a fair go. They want the people down the bottom to get a fair go and a lift up, but they want people to make a contribution. You can't spend a lifetime on the dole and things like that there. You can't claim that unemployment's gone down while the beneficiary numbers have doubled. That's the kind of gobbledygook the government's talking about now. So, so it's, an e it's on these areas. The hardcore issues which New Zealanders think about every day that we tend to articulate and be their voice. And that's why we are seriously looking forward to this campaign coming. 
Okay, so I think you're just hovering under five. So obviously, you, you feel that you'll you'll break through that. And well, tell hang me, on, hang on. the polls, uh, the last set of polls were twenty percent apart between two lots of polls that had national on twenty five or twenty three, and the next poll that had them on thirty. Another poll had them on thirty five, all in the same week. This disparity in the polls means the polling methodology is bulldust. And no other first world democracy accepts that sort of polling. But again, we're accepting third world standards in our country, and that's what this campaign's about. It's like mainstream media, media radio station ratings. Yes. Uh, it's uh, from the, the, the age of steam. Okay, if you... Well, can, um, I just say, can I just say on that, if you look at the mainstream radio uh, ratings, then we haven't got 5.1 million people in this country, we've got 25 million. Add it up. Good point. <laughs> All right. Maybe the few hiding away that we just don't know about. All right. Final question. If you get to form a government, how hard are you going to go? I think there's going to be an expectation amongst our listeners anyway, if you're in that position, that no no dancing around, no happy talk, the, the urgent situation, you've got to go hard and be brutal, will you? Uh, no, we'll go hard and be, um, when you say brutal, no, we're going to be honest and use all our experience because this is not our first rodeo like some parties. I mean, we were start, we started at the same time as the ACT Party. They've never been inside a cabinet room as cabinet ministers. They've been ministers, but not inside cabinet. And we've been there constant times before. After 30 years, how hard are we going to go? Well, everybody knows that when New Zealand first turns up, it's not our first rodeo. We understand the system. And we do know and want to ensure that the reason why we campaign, the reason why we made promises has become a political reality. Good heavens, in 2017 and 2020, the government looked so good that they all went and voted for the Labour Party. Now that we're gone, how do they look? They look like a permanent mess since we've left. And so handbrakes is important and experience is seriously important. And we've got some seriously experienced MPs coming back and we've got some wonderful new candidates. And I can't wait to unveil them. So it's, an, a watch, it's a watch the space moment. And you're not interested in baubles of office, are you? I see that all the time. The baubles interest you? And then I was like, you know, I, said, I should tell the media, I said, don't you understand the English language? What is a bauble? A bauble is, with a, is a trinket not worth having. <laughs> they never got it. They never understood. You know, I mean, if I got a knighthood, are you telling me that I wasn't offered a knighthood? They don't understand. Of course I was. But they, 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 it's not about the truth that they're interested in. It's imaging condemnation based on the, the shibboleths uh, and the bridges that they have. And make no bones about it. Why is it the media is so despised in this country more than ever before? It's because they're not doing their job. Uh, I'm glad you are. And I'm glad that we haven't fill in ourselves doing the job for them. So you didn't take the knighthood? Well, have I got one? No, no, I know, but well, I was it, down, but it was offered to I was you. Right? Offered a diplomatic post. Did they ever take one? No. For what reason? Many would, right? Yeah, but I don't. If I was interested in that, I wouldn't have gone to politics in the first place. <laughs> okay. All right, Sir Winston. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for coming on our radio station. We'll be watching what happens with what we've just been, been talking about and the campaign and your part of it as it uh, rolls on. And um, thanks for coming on RCR um, well, this, thank you for on this me. occasion. Thank you for, thank you for an, a very insightful series of questions and a chat. The reality is, whether you agree or not, at least you've heard both sides of the story after this interview. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.